Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. Talk. I'm your host, Timmy G. Diving into the news, this from TheGuardian.com. An important Lancet psychiatry paper has just come out. It is the largest review looking at service user, carer, and clinician experiences of mental health diagnosis. For some people, psychiatric diagnosis was helpful. The problem was that it was not given early enough. For others, a diagnosis was deeply oppressive. The tensions between these two camps frequently threaten to ignite social media. This dynamic, which causes significant distress, is only likely to increase. Social media gives a platform to those who have negative experiences of diagnosis. At the same time, as more and more people identify as having a mental illness as a consequence of changing public ideas around mental health. To drain something of the charge in these inflaming dynamics, it is important to confute the idea that psychiatric diagnosis is a single thing. Some diagnoses are more useful than others. Diagnoses such as obsessive-compulsive disorder and depression, for example, are more likely to be experienced positively, validating suffering and giving people a platform from which to speak about distress and access help. Yes, there is stigma, but not the rampant, sticky, staining discrimination one gets with diagnosis, diagnoses associated with serious mental illness. With the latter, diagnosis can produce what the philosopher Miranda Fricker has called testimonial injustice, an inbuilt prejudice that gives less credibility to the diagnosis. The diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, for example, is experienced commonly as a character slur, a dustbin diagnosis that makes many clinicians turn away from people in pain and take communications such as that someone wants to kill themselves less seriously to often deadly cost. The diagnosis of schizophrenia can confer with it a clinical gaze that situates those with the disorder as lacking insight and being delusional. This set of ascriptions has meant psychiatry is only now beginning to hear the devastating experiences of trauma so often core to experiences such as voice hearing and dissociation. It is difficult to say anything pro or against psychiatric diagnosis per se when different diagnoses have such wildly different effects on one's capacity to be taken seriously as a speaker. Even within diagnostic categories, Some people find diagnosis more useful than others. As the Lancet paper makes clear, the context in which a diagnosis is given is critical. If a diagnosis is offered carefully, with time for discussion, clear information, and hope, it is more likely to be experienced positively. How a psychiatric diagnosis is experienced is also mediated by an individual's life experience and their cultural identities. For example... Someone who identifies as LGBTQ 
might have good cause for suspicion of diagnosis, given that homosexuality was diagnosed as a mental disorder until the 70s. Diagnosis is also taken up and put down as an idea depending on the goals of conversations we are in. For example, in family therapy, patients who generally reject their diagnosis often take up this idea as a discursive move if relatives start to attribute cause to their poor parenting skills. It is difficult to make definitive statements about the scientific worth of diagnostic categories. Classifications often bleed into one another and lack the laboratory-type objective tests one generally finds in other branches of medicine. However, with some diagnoses, there is more evidence that pathological processes are at play than with others. For example, there is good evidence for neurobiological underpinnings to bipolar conditions. Elsewhere, The difficulties lie with the point at which we start to view experiences that lie on a spectrum as problematic. Here, it is important to critique the pernicious shaping influence of psychiatric expansionism and big pharma on how we view our inner worlds. Given diagnosis can be both a structural violence and a life-saving explanatory tool, what do we do? Frequent response is that patients should be free to choose. However, it is questionable whether one can make an informed choice about having, say, one's entire personality invalidated, or if it is possible to choose freely when diagnosis can be like an overbearing partner, taking up all the discursive space, limiting the possibility of thinking differently, and gaslighting understandable reactions to painful events in life. Instead, we need to create space for new ways of speaking about distress that foreground the effects of trauma and the socio-political context on the psyche and the body, and that also recognizes that difference becomes disability at the point that society tries to squeeze people into one-size-fits-all boxes. We must place the power to dictate the thrust of speech firmly with the person of most importance, the person in need. This can only occur if we hold a more tentative relationship to the diagnostic system and ensuring access to resources such as benefits that are dependent on severity of illness rather than acceptance of diagnosis. In an era where speech is more and more polarized and combative with devastating effects on our mental health, open dialogue is key. Far from being an everybody-has-won-and-all-must-have-prizes response to the diagnosis wars that have plagued psychiatry since its inception, such an approach demands a radical rethink of power relations in psychiatry to place patients' voices where they belong, center stage. That from Jay Watts, who is a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, and a senior lecturer working in London. In 2017, CFRC Radio celebrates 95 years of creating Campus Community Radio in Kingston, Ontario. Over the last 95 years, CFRC's governance has evolved. Once supervised by Queen's University and later by Queen's Alma Mater Society, since 2014, CFRC has been an independent, self-governing, not-for-profit organization. Its board of directors has representation from Queen's University, the AMS and SGPS, CFRC Radio Club, and the Kingston community. Learn more about CFRC, Canada's longest-running campus and community radio station at CFRC. Telephone Aidline Kingston is a crisis, distress, befriending, and information listening service based in Kingston. 
Talk is confidential, non-judgmental, and anonymous. We are a safe place to call when you don't know where to turn. To reach our aid line between 7 p.m. and 3 a.m., call 613-544-1771. For volunteering information, please email talkrecruitment at gmail.com. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca, where past episodes of Talk can be accessed by searching the archives, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. This from news1130.com. The Lori M. Tisch Illumination Fund has pledged $10 million to fund arts programs focused on mental health issues in New York City. The New York Times reports, The goals include improving the lives of those with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. They also aim to fight the stigma around mental illnesses and help people overcome trauma. Tish says the initiative will likely grow, especially after her foundation is bolstered by the proceeds of a Christie's auction of her parents' $80 million art collection next month. Her father was Preston Robert Tish, the investor who bought half of the New York Giants, in 1991. Her mother was the philanthropist Joan Tisch. And our last news focus for today from SteinbachOnline.com, concern expressed about impact of cannabis on mental health. A mental health executive from Steinbach says, just because cannabis will become legal in Canada later this year doesn't mean it's good for you. Chris Somerville, chief executive officer of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada, says it can, in fact, do a lot of harm. He explains people who have a history of mental illness in their family or who have mental health problems have a five to seven times greater risk of developing psychosis, often leading to schizophrenia. He says psychosis is when you have hallucinations like hearing voices that are not there or you have fixed thoughts that have no basis in reality, like believing that the aliens are about to take over Earth. Somerville adds, cannabis has its greatest negative impact on the developing brain up to age 25. That's because the young brain is developing in the prefrontal cortex, the white matter. Our brains actually have what is called endocannabinoid receptors. When you take cannabis with high THC levels, that affects the endocannabinoid receptors in your brain, leading to psychosis, the hallucinations or delusions. Somerville says this makes it especially important to try and prevent the use of cannabis before the age of 25, although it can also have effects on people beyond that age. What I would be concerned about is if I had a young child or a teenager, the earlier you use cannabis and the frequency of that use and the potency of the THC, the greater the risk of developing depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, as well as psychosis. But certainly, I've known people in their 40s and 50s who have used cannabis and have developed psychosis leading to schizophrenia. That from Chris Somerville, Chief Executive Officer of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada. He also goes on to say there's no way Canada is ready for the legalization of cannabis because so many issues have not been properly discussed with the public. In addition to mental health concerns, he says there are concerns about drug-impaired driving and the ability of police to test people for drugs. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Let's get personal. Our Talk feature interview.
Today I'm pleased to welcome Brad. Brad recently had a major surgery and he's been kind enough to come on the show and share his story with us. Brad, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So this major surgery that you had, when was it and what was it? Uh, the surgery was in March of this year, uh, early March, March 6th, and it was a gastric bypass. Uh, they call it a Roux-en-Y. So basically, uh, they cut a small portion of your stomach out uh, and connect your small intestine to it and then connect the intestine back to the full-size part of your stomach. And it's supposed to help with uh, eating less food and um, increase your metabolism. Okay. And I imagine based on what you just described, this is a major surgery. What that probably you didn't head into this lightly. Maybe you can take us back in time and give us a little bit of insight into what led you to making this decision. Um, actually, I went to my doctor in the spring of 2016. I had put on some weight over the past four years. Um, I had started a new job working shift work and I kind of, uh, continental style shift work and I kind of always blamed it on that, uh, for not having proper eating habits. But I also was drinking more too, so my weight was gaining. So I went to my doctor in the spring of 2016, uh, specifically for my blood pressure because my blood pressure readings, I was already on blood pressure pills, uh, had gone up and I needed to get it uh, down again. He had put me on an additional blood pressure pill to kind of maintain my blood pressure. And at that time, he had said to me, uh, have you ever considered uh, weight loss surgery? Uh, I was quite thrown back by that because I, I didn't see myself as being that big of a person. Uh, I think around that time frame, I was around 320 pounds uh, approximately. So I just kind of brushed it off and went through the rest of 2016 and not even really uh, thinking too much about it. It wasn't till late in the year I had brought it up again, speaking with some friends. We were just kind of in a room talking about, I don't know, random stuff. And I had brought up that uh, my doctor had said this to me and I was really thrown back. And because people always said, oh, you know, you don't look big. Um, you know, you're not a big, you're a big guy, but you don't, you're not fat or anything like that. Right. So, so that conversation took place. And then it was a couple of days after that, my, my wife had said to me, you know, with having high blood pressure and sleep apnea, um, being a big drinker as well, I'll make sure I throw that in there. Did you ever consider hearing out the doctor and what he, you know, the suggestion and stuff like that? And I thought, well, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe I, Maybe I should go in there and have it uh, talk to him about it and, and kind of see what this is all about. So basically, you know, you do your your doctor Google research and uh, look everything up and, and, and read about it. And so I did. I went back in uh, in January of 2017. Okay. I, I think at this point, you know, I was still in the 320, 325, 330 range. Uh, my, my, my weight was slowly creeping, but I was ignoring obviously not paying attention to it because I was at that point in my life where I didn't want to know because it just depressed me more than anything. Mm-hmm. So I went in, saw the doctor, and I said, yeah, I think I'm, I'm interested in what you had said to me back in the spring. Maybe uh, you can set me up with whatever whatever process takes place uh, with this whole thing. He uh, put in a referral for me. So I, you know, at that point, now I'm just like, holy crap, 
it wasn't until March of 2017 where I had the bariatric clinic uh, contact me to come in for an orientation. And leading up to that March 2017 appointment with for your orientation, you mentioned Dr. Google. I like that. Um, the different forums online and stuff. Had you joined different chat forums and stuff to learn more about it prior to that orientation, or was that something that you did after the orientation? Uh, to be honest, I'm not really sure on the exact time frame. It's somewhere, give or take, in that time frame, I think I started to get into some groups on Facebook. Um, I didn't really get into much conversation with people or comments because I didn't really know anything. I didn't really know a lot about it. I was just more open ears and, and having to hear what people had to say. For any of our listeners, this is a major surgery, so this is a decision that Brad didn't go into lightly. He did a lot of research online. He met with his doctor several times. He was checking out different Facebook groups, chat lines to get a sense for himself whether this would be a good decision for him. And it's important to do that level of of research to to be able to decide if this is a good thing for, for you. So you go to the orientation March 2017 and then how how do things proceed from there? And how are you feeling well, at this point? How are you feeling that you go through this orientation and you're like, this is for real, this is about to happen? How, how is your emotional temperament kind of adjusting to this these steps that you're going through? It was exciting but nerve-wracking at the same time because it's the outcome that you're not aware of what's going to happen because you hear a pros and cons. So there's pros and cons to just about everything. And, of course, with this surgery, there's pros and cons. So it's really hard to outweigh the pros and cons from a positive standpoint to a not-so-positive standpoint. And I don't know if it's just me, but a lot of people like to, or a lot of things that were said were, were uh, on the negative side of things uh, that were more scary than anything. Uh, the positive things, you know, you think, okay, yeah, I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to be able to move better, and, and I'll have less body weight on me um but then you hear the negative things about you could get ulcers you could get internal bleeding you there could be death at surgery and you're thinking oh my god what am i getting myself into Mm -hmm. the orientation was about two and a half three hours long and at the end of orientation you were to decide whether or not you wanted to proceed with surgery or take an optional route which would be um a non-surgical program that the clinic offered as well but there was like a two-year waiting list for that okay i already had it in my head i was going for surgery not knowing everything yes being slightly scared of the whole thing the what ifs but i was going to follow through regardless because i needed this change in my life and it was just going to happen in my eyes i already had my mindset how did you for yourself ultimately come to decide that yes this is what I'm committed to doing, and this is what I'm going to do. It was strictly health-related issues. Number one, high blood pressure, sleep apnea. I have psoriasis, so I was getting psoriatic arthritis in my hands and feet. On top of that, I have a very physical job, and as I was getting heavier, my job was getting harder. I would do 12-hour shifts, and I'd come out of there, and my feet would be throbbing. Uh, my knees would hurt. I was having a hard time climbing up and down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And simple things as even tying my shoes up, which was sad. 
for me. Ultimately, they that was the main decision factor, saying that I'm following through. Back in a minute. AMHS KFLA's Vocational Services connect employers with skilled workers recovering from mental health challenges. This free program offers individual assessments, job preparation training, and placement. Employers are matched with qualified, reliable workers and receive ongoing support for hires as they lead their lives in positive new directions. For more information, call 613-544-1356 or visit AMHS. Today I'm speaking with Brad, who recently had gastric bypass surgery. We'll return to that interview now. For our listeners as well, I mean, in terms of weight issues, there's a lot of different things that can contribute to weight issues. Certainly, food is a part of that equation, and food for most people is... We have an emotional connection with it. It's We eat food when we're happy. We eat food when we're sad. We, we celebrate. We meet with family, holidays. It's a wonderful part of our life. As you look back over the course of your life, how would you define your relationship with food? I've always been big on food. Cooking, I would entertain a lot. Uh, trailer, so inviting people. Uh, food was was huge in my life. I, I think it's huge in everybody's life. Putting food aside, I also was a fairly big drinker. Drinking and calories are like neck and neck. The biggest thing anytime I, I did weight loss programs in the past, it would, people would always say, well, not people, but programs would always say, don't drink your calories. Well, I was great at that. I wasn't drinking my calories at all, except the alcohol part. I was I was consuming mass amounts of wine. I was I made my own wine. It was always available at my fingertips. Because I was on this shift work pattern, you know, things sometimes things can get lonely. Uh, you know, as you're working nights and come home in the morning, and then your family starts their day, and it's your evening. I was drinking at odd times of the day, and for me, anytime I did drink, I'd start eating. And Correct me if I'm wrong, but most drinkers will know that you can eat a mass amounts of food uh, while you're while you're buzzed. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So th- th- those were my worst moments. And then as a shift worker, fast food, processed food, box food, convenience foods, whatever you want to call it, uh, again handy. Uh, cafeteria at work handy because you're burnt out. You're tired. You don't really want to prep. Uh, per se. And it's not so much the, you know, I like to cook and prepping wasn't an issue. It was the fact that you would go on two or three shifts in a row and the time in between 12 hour shifts and getting your sleep and your travel time to work is very short. Mm-hmm. Uh, last thing you want to do is make yourself a meal for the next day because at that point you don't even care. You just want to sleep, get your, your shifts over with and move on. And so as you're moving through the steps and the stages of this, preparing for this, this major surgery, how is your alcohol use being affected well when you get when you go through this whole process um you almost have that feeling like uh when i have the surgery everything is going to be taken away from me because you can't eat as much you're not supposed to drink alcohol you can't smoke fortunately for me that wasn't an issue so leading up to the surgery, you're not supposed to drink, or is the expectation that you're not supposed to drink after the surgery as well? Well, leading up and after, you're not supposed to drink. Okay. 
but as I'm going through the process and knowing these certain things and you're going to go through uh, a time frame of shakes prior to surgery uh, to, to, to shrink your liver for surgery because that is crucial uh, for the surgeon to work on the op- the, uh, the operation at hand and to you have this thought pattern of like, oh my God, it's going to come to an end. I need to consume everything I possibly can to get that gratification before this day comes. So as you're getting closer to surgery day, your alcohol use and your eating habits are getting more intense, intense, out of control. If could we say that? Sure. And I, I'm not speaking for other people. I'm personally speaking about myself here. Sure. Others, I'm sure, have done quite well in in prepping themselves and preparing for, uh, you know, healthier eating habits and all that. Not me. I treated it completely different. I thought it's going to be taken away from me. I need to get in as much as I possibly can. So yeah, it, it it got out of control. I think the time frame from late fall of 2017 to the time of starting shakes in February of 2018, I put on at least 20 to 25 pounds. Okay. And that's out of control if you ask me. I've seen through working with clients and in my own story as well that there's these benchmarks, if you will, that we arrive at in our life where we're faced to make better decisions. And sometimes it's around food, sometimes it's around alcohol, sometimes it's around a job that we're working in, sometimes it's around a relationship. And we have to step back and, and weigh the, the risk-reward, if you will, of where we're at in our choices. And I think for a lot of men, but women as well, when we get to our 40s, into our 40s and 50s even, that, that we're faced with, and you have a, a family as well, that we're yes. faced with looking at our, our behavior and the impact of those choices that it's having on us and that it could have on other people around us. And we have to decide, we have to make some new choices. And so I love that Brad has come on the show to share this because I think a lot of people are in his shoes in one form or another where maybe there's been something that's been nagging at you for a while and you've told yourself that you can continue to manage it and that it's not a problem. And yet, if we're really honest with ourselves, there's a good chance that it's a problem in hiding that's building. And those things that are a problem in hiding have the potential to trip us up very quickly because we don't often give them their due reality, if you will. So so you're going through this process, you're heading toward the surgery, you're eating habits are increasing because you feel like your food is going to be taken away from you for a while due to the due to the protocol of the surgery and afterwards. Your alcohol consumption is increasing because you have to stop drinking prior to the surgery and are supposed to cut down or be off it after the surgery. What else is happening in your life at this time? Well, I personally have an addictive personality. So putting all that aside, I'm also a gambler. Uh, I love my casino. So as I'm trying to fight the urges of food and drinking, my gambling also skyrockets. And I guess I've heard the term addiction transfer. I guess you could say I got a little bit out of control doing that to try and... uh, put my mind elsewhere besides the food and drinking. So it was in June 
of last year, I started to gamble more and more uh, as well. That, outside of the surgery, um, I started to realize that I need to put some solid foundation walls up. I had already gone, had already started the process for um, a weight loss surgery, and I knew that it was going to be a solid foundation wall for um, my food addiction, drinking addiction. My gambling got out of control in June, and it wasn't until late fall of 2017 I realized that I needed to put a wall up for that, too. If you're going to go through addiction transfers, uh, taking food and drinking away and going to gambling really isn't going to help my lifestyle out anymore. I'm not going to get any gratification from gambling because now, now will I not be able to eat or drink, but I'm throwing money out the window. So prior to June-ish of 2017, like years prior, how long had you been a casual social gambler? Uh, it would be regular trips to the casino once every month, once every two months. Like stretching or, back 10 years or 20 oh, years? Stretching back since the day I was 19. Okay. Since I became of age. Well, I, let me rephrase that. It was, it was uh, definitely more occasional when I was younger. I think it was uh, maybe in my 30s. 20s, I'm sorry, in my early 20s, that it would become more of like a once a month, once every two or three months uh, in that time range. This Last year in 2017, the casino came to my hometown. They built it. It was the best day of my life because now I didn't have to spend the gas money to go to the casino. Well, let me tell you right now, gas money to go to the casino is a heck of a lot cheaper than having a casino in your hometown. Hmm. So yeah, it was like June of last year. It was it wasn't turning into a once a month thing. It was turning into three or four times a week. Again, me saying I have an addictive personality. I was using excuses like oh, I'm just gonna go pick up my daughter from school, and my wife would be taking a nap or laying down, or she might be at work, and uh, I would just take off a couple hours early so I could swing in there and toss some money into the casino uh, before I picked her up. I think that's really important that you've given us a window into the the mindset and the mind games that we can play with ourselves when we're dealing with stress and addiction. And whenever we're faced with a situation in our lives where we are starting to get a sense that the decisions we're making are maybe not the best, and yet we have an emotional connection to those decisions. We have an emotional connection to those outcomes. So... There's a conflict within us. Part of us wants to keep doing what we're doing because we derive pleasure out of it and we have expectations of how that's going to improve our life. And then there's another side of us that feels a sense of guilt, maybe a sense of shame. As time goes on, the more we increase the frequency with which we're making these decisions, the more savvy or the more strategic we have to get to manage our life around this issue. So... Are you able to give us another example with kind of the mind games you had to play with yourself and how you rationalize your decisions, how you manage your week to make sure you fit gambling into your your schedule? What what would be can you think of an example of of that? Yeah, you basically take your schedule and map it out with your family's schedule and then pick the times that you're going to be free and you know they're not going to be around to get your fix. And in some cases, if it didn't work, uh, well, I get vacation. Uh, I would book a couple hours or four hours off work 
leave early and head to the casino because I wasn't expected to be home for a certain time. There you go. You got yourself two, three hours to, to do what you need to do to get that sensation. So you're at work. Your wife thinks you're going to be home at X time. You leave work early. She has no idea that you're at the casino at all. Nobody does, just yourself, maybe somebody that you see there that you know. But other than that, nobody else knows, and you're able to really... You're really able to enjoy it and knowing that you're not affecting anybody. It could be depressing at times because if you didn't if you didn't win or get the, the outcome you were looking for, you, you would come out of there thinking, oh, my God, I'm crazy. What am I doing? Uh, but that goes away quite quickly, and especially when you get the next urge to go again, which for me... Really, there wasn't much time in between. Was your hope of winning the next time the thing that enabled you to shut down your guilt or your shame or whatever emotion was coming up from the loss? Uh, yeah, I think you're always playing the catch-up game. I was doing a plus-minus, uh, and I was doing quite well, to be honest with you. And then it started to get really bad. The minus would go further in the hole. And then you'd have a couple of big wins. Those big wins would always kind of like get you feeling good again. And you'd put that money in the bank and you think, oh, good, you know, I got money to put in the bank. You know what the ultimate thing was is I oh, I think I got really bad because I was using the casino as an scapegoat for reasoning to be able to do things because I always told myself I never had the money to do anything. But as time would go on and I continue to gamble and lose certain amounts of money, I started to realize that those things I couldn't do, uh, I probably could have done them had I not gone to the casino. So interesting how we play these games with ourselves and construct a reality based on our expectations and our dreams, our goals, if you will. And yet when we pull ourselves out of that construction and we see reality clearly for what it is, we see that we have the capability to to actually do the things that we want to do in our our life. I think that's so fascinating, and it's it's very telling of how we, as human beings, seek to escape from our circumstances, and we construct these little worlds that we think are going to move us closer to the things in reality that we want, and they just keep moving us further away. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. so when you think back, you said that June of 2017, that's when your gambling really started to take a turn. When you look back now, when do you think it really started to affect you negatively? It started to affect me negatively because my spouse was starting to pay close attention to the credit card and the bank account and started questioning why all these withdrawals were happening and it created a little bit of conflict uh you know i've always been honest with my wife and that was one thing i wasn't honest about the one and only thing i wasn't honest about it was kind of deteriorating our relationship a little bit you know because here we are supposed to be a team accomplish goals together and, and here i am going behind the scenes and just basically throwing our money out the window with everything that's going on in my life in 2017 and i and i, I put all my focus into uh, quitting drinking, potentially trying to lose weight, and knowing that I'm going to be going for weight loss surgery at some point. I think it was time for me to, because I knew that wall was created, it was time for me to create the wall for, from the gambling aspect. And for me, at this point, I realize I need concrete foundation to stop myself from doing something. I had talked to a kiosk guy where I was getting a cell phone for my daughter 
and he brought it to my attention. I don't know how it got on the topic, but we were talking about the casino, and he brought it to my attention that there was a PlaySmart program in the casino where you could basically personally ban yourself from the casino. You're basically signing legal documents to say that you give them permission to charge you for trespassing if you're on the facilities, including the parking lot. Okay. I contacted them. It, in fact, was true. And I set up an appointment to have it done. The funny thing was, I knew it was happening. I knew the day it was going to happen, but it didn't stop me. It didn't stop me from gambling. I kept doing it until the point of that day. And on December 6 of 2017, I signed legal documents to state that I would not enter any Ontario casino because they all had the PlaySmart program. And I haven't been to the casino since. And today is April 20th. That concrete wall, I needed it. It was it was just like, I, I finally had kicked this habit, but I needed to put that in place to be able to do it. And that's why I noted that weight loss surgery was also going to be a thing for me because I needed that to happen for me to, to get where I want to be from a healthier standpoint. Well, I want to commend you too on your decision to ban yourself from the casino. I mean, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of resolve. I think we as adults struggle to ask for help and we think we can do it on our own. Many people may not make that decision. Many people may not take that step to ban themselves because, oh, I don't need to do that. I can handle this. I'm an adult. And yet, if you look at the history of your behavior, we're all getting caught up in things at times where we need to ask for help. There's there's things that we can do that will help alleviate our stress. And I think this speaks volumes as well to the challenge of addiction. Even though we know intellectually, rationally, that we shouldn't be doing this or we don't want to be doing this, we've told ourselves, we've told other people in our lives at this point that we don't want to be doing this. And yet, emotionally, there's such a pull and such a draw to that thing still. And it's almost as if we make these decisions often to soothe ourselves as a response to the stress in our life, to pain, to past hurts. And so even as you're getting closer to your your band date from the casino, you're gambling right up until that time because you know, this is it. This could be it for me. And half of you is willingly like, yeah, get this band going. I need this. And then the other part of you that's like kind of a sad child is like, I'm not ready to do this. I need this still emotionally. And yet the underbelly of that is that the longer they continue, the worse the outcome is. So it's great that you've made this decision. I think, too, for our relationships, our spouses or our kids or our parents, whoever, coworkers, whoever is involved in maybe being affected by our decisions, that if you're a spouse listening and you see this, these patterns in somebody that you know or that you're with and that you love, the addicted person through their choices, if it's been going on over time, they've felt enough hidden shame and guilt and stress about this situation on their own that when the big reveal comes, if you will, and now it's out in the open or you've told that person in your life, it's really important not to, I know it's hard not to react sometimes critically or very angrily, but it's at that point that real healing and real growth can begin to take place. So you as a support person, um, do your best to put your own personal feelings aside about the behavior and, and just recognize that here's somebody who's struggling with something and it's been hard for them, hard to to bring this forward. 
and that now that it's out in the open, we can work together as a team, as a unit, as a couple to improve the circumstances, really move into a better place. So, so what's the name of the program that you use to ban yourself from the casino? Well, it's through uh, PlaySmart, and I, I wanted to add that it is called the self-exclusion uh, program. And just because um, if there is anybody out there, you know, with the same type of addiction, uh, that there there is help there, and it's pretty pretty solid. So it, it'll stop you from going because it did for me. Let's bring it to present day. You had the surgery on March sixth. How have things been going since the surgery? Uh, things have been going really well. Um, February 13th, I started doing the shakes for a day with water, decaf, tea, or coffee, sugar-free jello. That's all I was allowed. Okay. And, and uh, so the surgery happened March 6th. Definitely frightening the first couple of days after because you're, I, me personally, I was so worried about what I could eat uh, and consume without physically hurting myself. However, as time goes on, uh, some of the bloating pains you had from surgery, it all just kind of slowly diminishes. And that time frame goes by quite quickly. I mean, I am now April 20th, and I feel 110%. The fear of not being able to ever eat again prior to the surgery, really, it didn't last long. Because you go through stages of eating to the point of uh, a regular diet, I'm just eating whatever I want, like I was prior to surgery. Of course, I'm mindfully eating better foods uh, and choosing high-protein foods because you have those requirements. But that restriction doesn't really, it doesn't feel like it's been taken away because now I get full faster. I get gratification from that angle. And uh, I'm down 62 pounds. Uh, and I say as of February 13th, because that's when I started uh, doing the shakes. So just a little over two months, it dropped rapidly. Now I'm back to work because I have a physical job. I'm hoping that uh, has uh, an impact on some further weight loss. Mm-hmm. My first two shifts back, I've already noticed bending over better. I, I do step, climb steps as well, you know, lifting. And just, I'm not out of breath. You know, my feet are not throbbing. Uh, like they, you know, they used to. I'm getting good. Com- I'm getting nice compliments from people. My shoulders are shrugged back now. My head's higher up. Uh, I just all around feel great. And I think the most rewarding thing for me is our trailers opening up here in this in uh, shortly, and uh, being able to do more physical things with my kids that I was never able to do. Like kayaking, I, I've never been in a kayak before. Can't wait to do it. Mm. Uh, they have baseball and volleyball games uh, with the whole park that I've never participated in. Can't wait to do it. Loading the boat into the water, getting in and out of the boat, it's going to be easier. I'm just a happy person all around. I think it's the best thing I've ever done for myself at this point in my life. I love that you've shared things that you look forward to doing that you previously weren't able to do due to your your weight or your size it's a great indication of what life can be like after we deal with a major thing in our life and whether you're listening and your weight loss comes through lifestyle changes and eating differently and it it doesn't involve surgery or if it does involve surgery regardless of what path you take that there's wonderful things that can take place after that and you do become a different person in a lot of ways 
I do know someone who had the surgery years ago, and I've heard even speaking with you, Brad, previously, and also through learning through others, that if one isn't careful after a surgery of this nature, one can start playing mind games with themselves and, and, well, I can eat this, I can eat this. And then I know somebody who gained all the weight back and more. How do you plan to manage against that and, and make sure that you're staying within the bounds of who you want to be today? Well, I think that's going to be a challenge no matter how you do things for the rest of your life. I think it's just more of a fresh start to be able to take control of that. It really, it's in your own hands. They use that terminology, mindful eating. I tell myself that over and over and over again. I'm just truly trying to pick better food choices. I mean, it's really up to the individual how bad they want to maintain and keep that lifestyle uh, after the fact. I know the weight can come back on. I've seen it before, too. Um, so you really got to look at what you've had done and use the, use the tool that the surgery has provided uh, uh, to your advantage. And always remember that and keep that in the back of your head. Mm. That you had it done for a reason. Don't spoil it. So if somebody's listening right now and they're dealing with a weight issue and they're seriously considering a next move, what advice would you give them? say you should do it or shouldn't do it really i think it's a personal choice on your own life behaviors all i can say is i wish i had done it sooner Hmm. uh i'm 41 this year honestly i wish i had done it in my 20s so you can take that for what it is well i want to thank you again i think that anytime we're willing to open up and share part of our personal life with others and especially when it happens on the radio takes a lot of courage to do that, but really, I think that's what we're here to do is help each other, and there's different ways that we can do that. Coming on this radio show, and, and that's really what we are focused on doing, is sharing people's stories that are not always pleasant to hear. It's not always rainbows and butterflies. Life is gritty, and it's difficult at times. We can stay the course and keep leaning on our supports and talking, continuing to talk about what's going on with us, then real and true progress can start to take shape. And uh, I think it's amazing what what you've done with the decisions that you've made and where you're at today. And I just want to wish you continued success on this path and uh, just to keep talking. Thank you. If you like great music from the 60s and 70s and good covers, Listen to Frankly Speaking, music to tickle your memory bone on Fridays at 1 p.m. on CFRC Radio. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. Swedish music legend Avicii has died at the age of 28. 
He died on Friday, April the 20th, after a string of chart-topping EDM hits and Grammy nominations. But in recent years, the Wake Me Up DJ was plagued by a series of health problems. This from The Sun. Avicii's real name was Tim Bergling. He was born in Stockholm on September the 8th, 1989, and he died in Muscat, Oman. He chose the name of Vici, which means the lowest level of Buddhist hell, because his real name was already taken on MySpace. He shot to fame with his Level single in 2011 and followed up in 2013 with the award-winning hit Wake Me Up. No details were released about his death, but his publicist said it is with profound sorrow that we announce the loss of Tim. The family is devastated, and we ask everyone to please respect their need for privacy in this difficult time. No further statements will be given. According to local media outlet Gulf News, two autopsies have been carried out, and there is no criminal suspicion regarding his death. In 2017, Avicii stopped touring and doing live performances after being diagnosed with pancreatitis from excessive drinking. He was forced to have an emergency appendectomy and have his gallbladder removed. Although the 28-year-old had planned to stop drinking, he was filmed with a drink in his hand just one day before his death. Avicii was an international pop star performing his well-known electronic dance songs around the world for diehard fans, sometimes hundreds of thousands at music festivals, where he was the headline act. His popular sound even sent him to the top of the charts and landed onto U.S. radio. But in 2016, the performer announced he was retiring from the road. He continued to produce songs and albums, but he said, I know I'm blessed to be able to travel all around the world and perform, but I have too little left for the life of a real person behind the artist. I will, however, never let go of music, but I've decided this 2016 run will be my last tour and last shows. Let's make them go out with a bang. Avicii was part of the wave of DJ producers like David Guetta, Calvin Harris, and Swedish House Mafia, who broke out on the scene as lead performers in their own right, earning international hits, fame, awards, and more like typical pop stars. He earned his first Grammy nomination at the 2012 show for a collaboration with David Guetta. It was around the time he gained more fame for the Etta James sample Dance Jam Levels, which reached number one in Sweden. Reflecting on his career a couple of years ago, Avicii alluded to the ups and downs. It's been a very crazy journey. I started producing when I was 16, started touring when I was 18, From that point on, I just jumped into it 100%. When I look back on my life, I think, whoa, did I really do that? It was the best time of my life in a sense, but it came with a price. A lot of stress and a lot of anxiety for me, but it was the best journey of my life. Last year, Avicii posted this message on his website promising to keep creating. The next stage will be all about my love of making music to you guys. It is the beginning of something new. Here is Avicii with Wake Me Up. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, CFRC.com. Feeling my way through the darkness, guided by a beating heart. I can't tell where the journey will end, but I know where to start. They tell me I'm too young to understand. They say I'm caught up in a dream. 
Well, life will pass me by if I don't open up my eyes. Well, that's fine by me. So wake me up when it's all over. When I'm wiser and I'm older. All this time I was finding myself in a The 28-year-old international DJ died on Friday, April the 20th, at the tender age of 28. Wake Me Up was a collaboration. It was written by Avicii, Mike Einzinger, and Aloe Black. Aloe Black is an American soul singer who provided the vocals, and Mike Einzinger of Incubus provided the acoustic guitar. Wake Me Up peaked at number one in much of Europe and charted well in various countries, 
On YouTube, it has over 1.5 billion views. Avicii's words are very telling when he said, I have too little left for the life of a real person behind the artist. This is a common experience for a lot of musicians and performers, many who gain international fame, the price of stardom and all that that entails, the anxiety, the intense pressure, the responsibility that you have to millions of people around the world to always be on, to not lose yourself to that world. It seems that Avicii made attempts over the past couple of years to communicate to some of his management team that this is too much for me, I need to stop. And yet at that point, there's often financial entanglements, contractual obligations that you can't get out of. The pressure to continue performing inside this machine, initially it started out as creativity and passion for the music. And eventually once the business side of it takes hold, it can be really hard to set proper boundaries within that context. And as I said, not lose yourself. So he had obviously been dealing with some health problems connected to alcohol. Vici's story highlights the notion that fame comes at a severe price at times, and sometimes a deadly price. In honor of Avicii, I put together a mix called The Nagging Threat of Impermanence. If you want to listen to that track, you can go to my YouTube channel, Timothy David Goche, G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R, and check it out. Our condolences go out to all of Avicii's family and all of his many fans around the world. Here are a few comments from his YouTube channel. You are such a huge inspiration for so many people and for me. I used to listen to this song all the time, and I still do. One of my all-time favorite musicians, rest in peace. Such a young soul, huge loss to all music lovers, rest in peace. Sweden will miss you, the whole world will miss you, a big talent that left us too soon. One of the best DJs of our times, rest in peace, Tim Bergling, 1989-2018. to This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgoche.com. That's info at timothydgauthier.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety, Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. Address 1111 Taylor Kidd Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. With infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.